you are listening to the next best picture podcast and this is our review of come on come on when you think about the future how do you imagine it'll be what will stay with you and what will you forget (laughs) how will your city change will families be the same keeps asking why we don't talk you could tell him the truth. Mom died and got into all that weird stuff. That weird stuff of our entire lives. What scares you? Jesse! Where'd you go? What makes you angry? Ah! You rise up like a volcano and I will destroy you. <laughs> Do you feel lonely? Maybe we can just take this process slowly and see see how it feels. You are just terrible at this. Oh man, I'm trying. (laughs) What makes you happy? All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Come On, Come On, and the story is as follows. A man and his young nephew forge a tenuous but transformational relationship when they are unexpectedly thrown together. The film is starring Joaquin Phoenix, Gabby Hoffman, Woody Norman, Scoop McNeary, Molly Webster, and Jabuki Young-White. It is written and directed by Mike Mills. Here to join me today, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everybody. Dan Baer. Good evening. And Tom O'Brien. Hello, hello. So, Come On, Come On is the latest film from Mike Mills, whose last feature film was 20th Century Women, brought him an Oscar nomination for original screenplay, was heralded as one of the best films of the year, and four films now into his filmography, a very, very short one that began in 2005 with Thumbsucker. I think Mike Mills has really established himself as a real genuine voice out there in contemporary American cinema and one that I really appreciate, hold dear and close to my heart for the warmth that his movies bring. Uh, This is something that I feel that starting with Beginners, uh, which was a relationship about his father and then 20th Century Women being movie based on his relationship with his mother. And now we come to Come On, Come On, where the relationship that's depicted here, even though it's between uncle and nephew, is very much based off of Mike Mills' relationship with his own son. Drawing some from such personal places, I think that it really comes across here in the storytelling, and it's why his films are being so well-received right now by audiences. This film premiered at the Telluride Film Festival and has since then gone on to just get really, really enthusiastic praise from those who have seen it so far. So... What do we think of it? I'm curious to know. Uh, why don't we start off first with Nicole Ackman. Nicole, what did you think of Come On, Come On? Okay, so Come On, Come On, weirdly enough, is not a film that I was super excited for, which is strange because I really, um, really love 20th Century Women. I, I think that that film is brilliant, but I'm actually not like a huge Joaquin Phoenix fan. So I think that's why this just like wasn't really something that I was was looking forward to until a couple of friends of mine saw it, uh, including Dan, and told me that I would love it. 
And um, the specific pairing of friends, Dan and this one other friend of mine, whenever they both think I'll love something, I always do. So that completely changed my mind. I was like, all right, I'm really looking forward to this. And I made a point of seeing it. I love that I'm not included in the friends group here, but it's okay. I'm sorry, Matt. You are not the like arbiter of my taste that these friends are. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I love Joaquin Phoenix and almost everything he does. So yes, you're probably (laughs) right on the money with that. Yeah. Um, but so I saw this at Film Fest 919, which is our film festival uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I went into it and I just fell incredibly in love with it within like the first 20 minutes. I love it so much. I think that the way that it portrays sort of the experience of taking care of a child is really, really moving and really beautiful and really brilliant. Um, as someone, I was eight, almost nine when my little sister was born. So I spent a lot of my younger years taking care of her. And I was 17 when she was nine, the age that that Jesse is in this movie. So I have like very vivid memories of her at this age. And now my cousins, I have kids that I'm around a lot that are, you know, essentially like my nieces and nephews. And um, I am someone who I love children. And I think that they're like the most fascinating thing, particularly at the age that we see Jesse at in this movie. So I just think that it's it's a really beautifully done film. It's so well acted. I mean, I cannot believe that I'm like so obsessed with the Joaquin Phoenix performance, but I am. Um, and Woody Norman like is so incredibly talented. But obviously, we'll talk more later about like the interviews and and the the cinematography in this. But I just really think it's uh, one of the most beautiful and, and moving films of of the whole year. All right. Next up, Tom O'Brien. Well, Matt, don't hate me for this. I'm not that big of a fan of Mike Mills's films. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Tom, I'm kind of with you. Interesting again. <laughs> Dan, we'll get to you. Tom first. How, wh- wh- why do you think that is? Uh, I admire the f- that his films are so written. But to me, at least... I always feel this sen- the sense of the screenwriter being there. Uh, it's not the dialogue in his films, at least for me, doesn't sound like it comes out of characters' mouths naturally, but was written by a writer. And, and it's odd because with beginners and 20th century women, and this is less true for 20th century women, I think, um, it's, it does... For a writer, it's very uh, unusual, I think, for that to happen. And so I actually entered Come On, Come On a little with a little trepidation. I loved it. Oh, I don't know what this what it, why it, nothing felt written here. Everything felt spontaneous. It might be the documentary feel to it. There's that overlay of a Joaquin Phoenix's uh, profession. Um, but it had a feeling of spontaneity to it that I thought had, has been missing in his films. And I was looking forward to every single scene. It was like, I can't wait. Oh boy. Oh boy. It, it does help that he has, again, superb actors. He has great, uh, sense of casting. Uh, but there's something for me, at least it, it all came together here. And I am like Nicole, a big fan of come on, come on. It'll surprise you to hear Tom that the interviews that, Joaquin Phoenix's character Johnny conducts with the kids in this movie are actually all written. Well, he's got some very good actors because it sounded spontaneous. I'm totally kidding. They are spontaneous. He didn't write those. 
Oh, Matt. <laughs> Fooled again. <laughs> uh, Dan Bear. Dan Bear. What did you think of Come On, Come On? So I'm kind of in Tom's boat going into this. I really like beginners and I really like 20th Century Women, but I've always, there's always been something with Mike Mills' films that have held me back from full on love. And I, I do think that that part of what Tom said is um, a large part of that, which, you know, is that um, they, they, these movies feel very written, even though they may be very naturalistically performed, there is something about the structure and the lines that feel very writerly. And that kind of doesn't mesh well with the naturalistic style of his filmmaking. Um, but this... <laughs> completely disarmed me um, from almost the word go. Um, the, those interviews that Joaquin Phoenix's character is conducting with these teenagers are so, so incredibly fascinating to listen to. I could have done a whole movie just about that, but then we wouldn't get this unbelievably lived-in beautiful sibling relationship between Joaquin Phoenix and Gabby Hoffman, um, who just f create this. It felt so real. It reminded me of me and my sister, um, even though we are not anywhere near the stage in our lives that these characters are. Um, I was impressed that this movie has such love for every single character in it, even the ones that are, um, shall we say, giving everyone else a hard time. Um, and it has so much love for the world. <laughs> there is something that this movie has captured, at least for me, about um, the beauty of the world that I really needed after 2020 and 2021 <laughs> um, <laughs> like it gave me sort of like the reason to hope that we can somehow turn this world around and make it better um, and that's a really beautiful thing and there are so many beautiful moments in this movie, and I can't wait to continue talking about it with y'all. So I'm a massive fan of Mike Mills heading into this one, and I had pretty high expectations for this movie, all things considered. And I can say that they were met. I don't want to say they were exceeded, but then again, remember, I also went in with very high expectations. So this is going to be a ringing endorsement no matter what I say here. But it is another tender, honest, and funny film from him. It's very funny at times. I think it has Joaquin Phoenix's most emotionally affecting work that he's done since her back in 2013. Woody Norman is a, he's a revelation in this. A pure natural who is an equal to Joaquin Phoenix on screen in a way that is just mesmerizing to watch their chemistry together is really incredible and it's all backed by this 
ethereal score by Aaron and Bryce uh, Dresner, otherwise known as the National. I did feel that it could get a little repetitive at times and maybe it was a little too meandering, but the quality of the filmmaking, the cinematography, uh, the fact that it's set primarily in New York, even though it does hop around to other cities, it reminded me of other great indie New York filmmakers like like Noah Baumbach, you know, and just showcasing um, a slice of life movie in a way that gave me a reverence for humanity that a lot of times, a lot of movies, they tend to push me more towards the cynical and the depressing and I just walk away from movies going, yeah, the world is fucked up, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But with this film, I was filled with so much hope and optimism for a future that we're leaving behind for the next generation where, yes, we are walking into this movie with our preconceived notions of how incredibly screwed up our planet is uh, from global warming, how terribly ineffective our justice system is, how we naturally are treating each other as fellow human beings, inequality, There's so much that we're doing in this world to contaminate it and bring it down. But to a child's mind, they don't see any of this or they don't think of it in the same way that we think about it. It's like as we get older, we have a tendency as adults to overcomplicate and overanalyze and make things that are more straightforward and simple much grander than they actually are. And I love how through these interviews that uh, Joaquin Phoenix as a radio journalist that he's conducting where he's asking these kids about the future and how they feel about the future, they're taking these very, very complex subjects and distilling them down to a pureness, something that I feel that we don't even do on this podcast sometimes. We don't do in, in person uh, with each other because, let's face it, it's been a long time since any of us here were, you know, nine or ten years old. And this movie almost, like, made me think back on, man, if I was having conversations with kids in the playground or wherever about these things, how did we talk about it? That was just so enlightening to kind of reflect back on and think to myself, like from a child's perspective, this is how children view the world. Yeah, I think the way that, you know, the film does sort of give us this insight into uh, the perspective, not just of of Jesse as this nine year old, but also with these all these interviews to these other children, I think like the way that it gives us sort of an insight to what these kids are thinking and feeling about the world is really, really touching and really fascinating as well. Like, I think that there's also something we said that, uh, this is something that I've noticed, like there's a real difference, I think, in people who are even in their twenties now and how we view the world as kids, how we view the world now and kids who were born like post nine 11, uh, mm-hmm. I know that, like, it's something I yeah. see really strongly between me and my little sister and there's only eight years in between us but even from a, a young age the way that she thought about the world the way that she thought about things I mean things like global warming um, shootings like is very different than the way that 
I thought about things as a child. And I think that that's part of what like makes it so interesting to me is to sort of see the way that these kids are conceptualizing the world that we live in and how aware of things they are, even at a young age. Well, because also too, our parents, I feel would do their best to try to shield us from such things as, as children. Whereas now because of the internet, um, because of television, Mm -hmm. everything else, Kids are going to learn about this stuff one way or another. So there is a more heightened awareness uh, for children of today to be aware of such things, which is all the more amazing because they're being brought up in a totally different world than any of us were brought up in. It is still the same world, but to experience those ideas and thoughts at an earlier age, whereas we might not have started thinking about these things until our teenage years or even our 20s in some cases. And there's almost like this mental reckoning maybe that we have to have where we have to reconceptualize stuff that we took for granted or just never even thought about. It's something that we have to like then and in that moment do. But here we have nine, 10 year olds who are very much aware that the planet is dying. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm amazed that these interviews are 100% authentic, non-scripted, and that he was able to capture, like in, like someone said earlier in this like documentary style, mm. um, a snapshot of the mental state of the next generation and frame it in such a way where it isn't depressing but actually hopeful because of the fact that you're hoping that kids are more aware of this stuff and will be able to exhibit change moving forward you know what i mean yeah i think that what i particularly like about this the inclusion of the kids uh talking about their lives is that you begin to realize that they each of them may have a come on come on kind of story to tell Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many stories that we have heard in this film of these other kids and that Jesse is not standing for all kids. Everyone is just very individual with their own stories to tell mm-hmm. and kind of puts everything in perspective when you we get to hear Jesse's story. I really love that, Tom. And like the. The idea, you know, like all all movies are, you know, at their heart, a form of storytelling. And this, I think that was one of the things that sort of disarmed me about this movie was I was not expecting this movie to be so directly a movie about storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the inclusion of those interviews, I think, is so incredibly smart and giving... Um, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, that character, this is his job, you know, doing like working for like an NPR type thing where he, you know, has a show and goes around and interviews people. I think it's so smart because one of his best qualities as an actor is how active a listener he is. Oh, yeah. You're right. And watching him with those kids. And I know that like they had, um, Oh God, what's her name? Molly Webster? Yes, Molly Webster. I I wanted to say Molly Gordon. I'm like, no, that's not. That's someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Molly Webster. 
<laughs> um, I love that they, you know, they as included her and brought her on early on into the project to specifically do this. But like, he feels even more authentic because he's next to her and doing these things with her. And, you know, he's almost as good as it is she is. <laughs> I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is one of the greatest living actors on the planet. You pretty much give him the assignment to do anything and he's going to make it convincing to some degree. (laughs) Whether it was deliberate or not, I love that this is his follow-up performance to his Oscar-winning role in Joker. It reminds me very much of when he did Her following the Master. Yeah. Yes. And like I said, I don't think it's deliberate that he would go from one side completely to another in terms of the type of performance that he's delivering. I I really don't think that he operates that way. But I think that if that is the case and it isn't deliberate, it only speaks to just what an incredible talent he is because that, that he can so effortlessly jump back and forth between the two. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. And, and it's so wonderful to be reintroduced to this side of Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It, especially here. as someone who's like not really a big fan of of his work in general. And my other favorite performance of his is her. I had kind of forgotten a little bit that he can do this like softer, mm-hmm. more subtle work so well. Uh, and he like he's so just lovely in this movie and lovely is not a word that I would put to most Joaquin Phoenix performances. (laughs) Oh, Nicole, when you get a chance, I highly recommend a movie that does not get talked about often. Uh, There's a 2008 film that he's in called two lovers. Oh, yes. And I know that you've seen uh, the immigrant. Yes, I have. I have. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm adding it to my physical list of movies I have on my desk to watch right now. <laughs> <laughs> but believe me when I tell you, if you like this side of Joaquin and you want to see more of that, I really recommend checking out Two Lovers. Okay. Okay. I definitely need to watch that though, because I love this side of Joaquin. I think like I I don't I, I can't even fully say like what it is about his other performances that like, I just really don't connect with. But this like more subtle side of him where he's you know like the character of johnny is actually 
somewhat like soft spoken. Like he's not a very extreme man. And a lot of what he's doing here is really subtle, but his chemistry with Woody Norman in this is just absolutely insane. Like they're so believable uh, as this pair and in, in this bond and the way that they get to know each other. Um, and that strange sort of affection that you have for a family member, even when you don't know them well, I, I think they capture that like really well. The, their chemistry is fantastic. The The fact that Woody Norman, despite the whole thing that I, the one thing in this movie that I like kind of went, oh, gilding the lily a bit there, Mike, um, with he, Woody Norman's character, Jesse, um, being pretending that he's an orphan. Oh, it's role playing. Okay. And, no, no, but like it's but but it, it the thing is that it should come across as like really kind of movie kid ish. Well, it's like it's like it's like kids coming up to you and saying, "Hey, Uncle Dan, let's play house." Well, no, I know, but I'm saying that like it it should come across as like pretentious and like not a thing that you know a real kid would do in this way. But he makes it feel really natural i was telling matt before we started recording this podcast that around the age of nine i had a fascination with orphans oh, <laughs> and i like and i think it's of course you did a lot of characters in children's <laughs> books a lot of ca- children's characters in musicals they're mm-hmm. all orphans they're yeah. all orphans i swear it's just because authors are too lazy to like write parent characters i think the really great thing about something like that though is that it's so preposterous and so kind of out there but this is the way that a child's mind works and you have to play along you have to go along with them for the ride and it is exhausting this movie does like a really good job of showing the physical and mental effort that goes into having to keep up with a child hence why the title of the movie uh you know, makes so much sense to me where as a as an adult, you would think that it's very much about Joaquin Phoenix telling, you know, the child, come on, come on. Like, I'm coming. I'm going this way. You got to follow me. When in reality, it's mm. the kid nagging the adult saying, come on, come on, play with me. <laughs> I think the way that this movie captures and, you know, I think this is partially like Mike Bills and it partially is Woody Norman captures the fact that with children, particularly children around this age, there's this strange dichotomy of on one hand, they are the most infuriating thing (laughs) ever. Like they are the most exhausting, maddening thing to be around. And on the other hand, they are so awe inspiring. And it's like, you look at them with such wonder because nine is around that age where like, like, you know, Viv says in the movie, like he's becoming a little person. Um, And I think that like they managed to completely capture the fact that, kids are both of those things at once and that that is like the strange beauty of being around a child like this even though it is so physically and mentally draining and like i think that so much of what this film captures is the very real experience of caring for a child and and being around a kid around this age and like i mean i remember having those moments with my sister where you're out somewhere and you turn around and you're like, where the hell have you gone? <sighs> and that absolute 
panic. But like, I swear the panic that I felt in those moments in this movie, it was like it triggered something like from the recesses of my brain from like, you know, my sister is 18 now. So from like, a you know, freaking nine years ago, <laughs> it, it captures like the panic in that moment of it. And then the absolute anger at the kid, but then the guilt that you feel, because on one hand, you're like, why did you wander away? And on the other hand, you're like, how could I let you wander away? <laughs> Uh, and I, I think that like the way that it, it captures all these very subtle nuances of, of what it means to, to take care of a kid at this age is just unlike anything I've ever seen before. And one of the things that struck me the most about um, Woody's performance as Jesse was he is extroverted, extremely, extremely bright, bright, but he also reveals the loneliness that the character has. Mm. And the he, this is an emotionally needy kid and it would be a challenge for any experienced parent and the fact that Joaquin is thrown into a situation where he he never has any training he doesn't have any bearings for this and how the two of them build this relationship that's rocky in the beginning but they both manage to get on each other's wavelengths so that uh, Jesse can have his emotional needs filled and grow. And the two, the two characters just grow together and it's beautiful. And I love that it's a mutual thing. Like he is, Joaquin is also doing this because he needs that emotional connection too. But the thing that like really stands out to me about both of those needs there for me is that Mike Mills avoids going to easy tropes Mm. to explain those needs So, for example, it would be so easy, so easy, because we've seen this how many times before, to paint Johnny as a deadbeat, low life, you know, down on his luck type, the irresponsible adult who just so happens to be the only person that could take care of his sister's kid, and he has to mature by the end of the film. Yeah. And Johnny's not portrayed in that way, necessarily. Yes, it's true that he is inexperienced with raising children, but he's never presented in that stereotypical sort of way. There's also, I I, I kept waiting throughout this entire movie. I don't know if anyone else feels the same way about this, but like the entire film, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yes. I was like, is there a dark backstory to Johnny? Is there something about Jesse's relationship with his father, uh, played by Scoot McNeary, that we're going to get at some point? Is there going to be some sort of big dramatic scene of hysterics? And, you know, like, I I kept waiting for something to happen. I I just thought, like, something truly horrible was going to happen to Jesse. I just kept waiting for someone to die. I was like, someone's going to die. (laughs) Or it was going to be revealed that Johnny, maybe he even had a kid before. And where's that kid now? Who knows? None of that. No. None of that at all. I think Phoenix does intimate a little bit. Maybe it's just his past roles that there might be a bit of a dark side to him that he's suppressing uh, in, in his new job uh, dealing with Jesse. Um, but it's only a suggestion, and it's uh, and it may just be our previous baggage with him. Well, but. it's all in that sort of unspoken history of that we get like little pieces of the backstory. Like he was in a relationship, but it didn't work out. Why exactly didn't it work out? We don't really know. 
And what exactly happened with him and his sister when their mother died, we don't know the details of it, but we get enough of a broad strokes to see that, like, okay, something like a rift happened and there was a reason for it. And I can and I just say, like, I love those flashbacks to Joaquin Phoenix and Gabby Hoffman in the hospital with their mother before she died. I love those scenes so much. <laughs> those were the scenes that reminded me a lot of some of the, some of like the shots and moments in mm-hmm. something like 20th century women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where you're starting to see, okay, like there's some reoccurring stylistic elements here, Mike, that I'm seeing now across your filmography that I, I like moments like that because it kind of just then speaks to, uh, what a unique storyteller he is um, that there's a definable like there's there are definable attributes. He has his auteur signature. <laughs> yeah. And it's usually these very humanistic moments that are backed by uh, this graceful these graceful camera movements and. Man, I'm telling you, that score, oh my lord. The Dustner brothers are really going through the throat this year with their movie work between this and Cyrano. <laughs> right? They're having a moment. The score is so nice just to listen to, like even outside the context of the movie. I was Whenever I was writing my review for this movie, I, I was listening to it and I was like, dang, this is just like nice music. Like, And it works really well within the context of the film too, but like... I love a score that works both in and outside of a film. Yeah, and that's the thing for me is that like Mike Mills makes nice movies, but in so many instances, nice is code for boring, and his movies are never boring. They're nice and they're very gentle and graceful, but there's always meat to them. You can dig into them. It's not just about the surface niceness. You know, there there are layers. There are so many beautiful, wonderful layers. Well, I think the fact that, like we mentioned earlier, that there is kind of like an open backstory to some of the characters. There are pieces that aren't necessarily filled in. And there's so much universal truth to be found, not just in the relationship between Johnny and Jesse, but in these interviews that uh, Johnny is conducting with these kids that I would find it very hard uh, to believe if somebody walked away from this saying, I couldn't latch on to anything. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. There, there is so much in this, in this that feels so universal. I would be worried. I would be worried about anyone who couldn't find something in this. Too. <laughs> and yeah. at the same time, it's pretty incredible when you consider that the movie is almost, not fully, but almost entirely devoid of conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's some stuff there, but the movie never fully acts on it. Yeah, I mean, the conflict is always sort of like... I mean, the biggest conflict is with Scoot McNary's character, and is he going to take the steps that he needs to to get better? But that's not even the movie's main focus. No. Well, but I I think that what we're seeing is sort of the aftermath of the conflict, Mm -hmm. in that we know that Viv and Johnny had this falling out, essentially, around Mm -hmm. the time of their mother's passing because of what seems to have been, you know, childhood issues that got that resurfaced while they were caring for their mother about, you know, how uh, Viv in particular, I think, feels about the way that their parents treated the two of them differently. And 
I think that, you know, because of that, we know that they've not seen each other in a year. And, and because of that, Johnny doesn't really know Jesse and Jesse doesn't really know Johnny either. And so I think that in many ways, like what we're seeing is actually the coming back together post-conflict, which is a really fascinating thing to see. And it means that like, instead, what we have are these like tiny little conflicts where it's things like, you know, the, the conflicts are Jesse not being able to articulate his feelings and lashing out uh, or Jesse, you know, walking away in the store and Johnny yelling at him and then them having to try and sort out their, their, you know, sort things out between the two of them. And I think that that just feels so realistic to what everyday life is actually like. Like, obviously, conflicts do happen in real life, but most of the time you're dealing with much more minuscule things, especially with a child this age. 100% agreed. There's nothing about the conflicts that are artificial. Right. In imposed yeah. on the story. Everything flows naturally. And as you said, Nicole, uh, things that we can relate to from our everyday lives, whether we're parents or not. And there are two character arcs that are being tracked here because both characters learn lessons from the other. Mm-hmm. That by the time we get to the end of the movie... Um, it just feels like both of them are fundamentally different than how they were when we, when we first were introduced to them. And it's part of this meaningful bond that has developed between the two of them as uh, Johnny stepping in as this surrogate father type for Jesse. And, you know, it's interesting the more I think about it and, the you know, some of the things that you guys have said, I'm remembering that. In the course of watching the movie, the thing that, you know, Matt, you had mentioned earlier about you kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. And I kept waiting for the moment when um, Johnny would just give up and send Jesse back to Viv. You know, and there'd be a teary scene and you're like, I just can't do this anymore and blah, blah, blah. And th- that moment never really comes yeah and i think that that is partially like it it's so beautiful because you see it almost happen a few times and viv is like having none of it (laughs) she's like nope nope you that kid's yours now you're stuck with him until i'm done with what i gotta deal with and yeah it's fucking hard welcome to my life do you think that because the conflict is never ending and it's ongoing that that's like kind of mirroring the larger scale conflict of the macro problems that we're dealing with as you know a collective species on this planet and how that isn't necessarily resolved so why should this micro conflict be resolved Hmm. that's really interesting i think there is something to the like it's almost like it's almost like mike mills is just saying like life goes on yeah find a way to deal with it yeah, like the world sucks, but like we, that's just yeah. life. Yeah. yeah, and we're capturing a, sh- a snapshot of these people's lives, but they will continue after this. Exactly, I love it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, so big question on everybody's minds: How did you feel about the decision to shoot this in black and white? I don't think it necessarily had to be shot in black and white but i'm at least glad that it looks like it was made to be shot in black and white dan i can tell you 
straight from Mike Mills's mouth that that is correct. <laughs> it was always intended to be black and white from the very beginning. Oh, I know, <laughs> but it it feels that way. Like the it the cinematography, it is like crystal clear throughout the whole thing. And there's something about the contrast level that they used in cinematography that just like it feels very crisp and um like tom said like this documentary style feeling and it never felt like it was just um after the fact color graded to be black and white it reminds me very much of something like manhattan or mm. uh, Francis Ha. Francis Ha was my first thought when yes. I saw it. Yeah, yeah where it's not yep. overly beautiful, but there is a quality to it that still is. There's like certain black and white films, like, you know, take this year, for example, like Belfast and the Tragedy of Macbeth, where it's like, wow, a lot of thought went into making these individual shots like clearly look beautiful. But here, they're just working with these very naturalistic sets, a very simple lighting setup, and yet still there is a quality to the images that this movie never looks cheap. It never looks messy, and it still it still has a very pleasing aesthetic that fits the score, fits the the tone of the performances, the screenplay, like everything else. Feel everything just feels in sync, but not in an overt sort of way. I agree. And I also think that like Francis Ha, there's something about the movie being in black and white that sort of highlights the fact that though it's about a fairly pedestrian topic, like we've, you know, we've said it's very, there's very little conflict. It's about very real characters, you know, very real things. There's something profound about it as well. And like Francis Ha, like there's something deeper going on here, I think. And it, it, I don't know, to me, it feels like the black and white sort of emphasizes that because it, it asks us to sort of consider what the artistic value of it is in a different way. I when I'm, I asked the first asked the why black and white question during the Los Angeles scenes. And why? I don't know. I'm so used to seeing Los Angeles in color. Uh, but when they got to New York, it just fits, you know, especially on the streets of New York. It just felt kind of a has a nice loosey-goosey feel to it, uh, despite the fact that those characters are just so well-written. Uh, it was it, it made for a nice contrast, and I just was happy of the black-and-white choice from that moment on. I, I think one of the things that I liked was that um, they managed to capture the flavor of each city that they travel to during the course of the movie, but the black and white makes everything feel unified in a way that shooting in color doesn't necessarily do. I like that. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. No, I like that. Made the world feel a little smaller, which is nice. <laughs> Sorry. I was just like, this movie's so nice. <laughs> I like it so much. I <laughs> I can see the smile on your face. <laughs> I have written, I have my notes from when I saw the film right here. And I have written at one point, this is just so damned cute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, for final thoughts on Come On, Come On, anything that we didn't mention that you want to mention or reiterate, uh, Nicole Ackman, what do you have? All right, I have two things. The first is that I love, 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 love the use of literature in this movie. Yep, I knew that was coming. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is me being like a cliche of myself, but we see Johnny not only reading to Jesse, like the scenes of him, you know, reading The Wizard of Oz are so... um, Lovely, and I think that that is like such a large part, honestly, of like taking care of a child. Is like that's one thing kids want. They want you to read to them, particularly at bedtime. But also the way that he's reading his own adult books, I say like quote unquote, um, and reflecting on Mm -hmm. them. And all I mean, I love those so much. I also love the scenes of him just sort of like recording into his his interview like gear, um, his musings on. Uh, things that have happened and I think that those sequences are really lovely the other thing I have to say is before I saw this movie I'd had several male friends of mine tell me that they cried in it and I was like all right like I gotta be ready I gotta I'm definitely gonna cry then and I got almost the entire way through the movie and I was like what were they on about like I (laughs) said fine Uh, and then there's this one one bit towards the very very end and there's this one line and when I tell you it broke me I mean I cried so hard I was sniffling for like 20 minutes afterwards um, to the point that I was telling people at this festival that I was talking to I was like by the way I'm not sick this is because I cried because I sounded like I had a cold um, because it just absolutely got to me. And, and there's this, I, I don't want to give it away for anyone who like maybe hasn't seen it yet, but there's this one line that just completely broke me down. And I was like, Oh, okay, there it is. Well, this is what I get for being cocky. Uh- there were so many uh, reports of people crying uh, when I saw this at Telluride. And I will admit I didn't. Which which I was surprised by because I expected to, and everyone was talking about that like afterwards. Oh my god, I cried so much, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the takes I was hearing, uh, what I would say, oh, I didn't cry. I wonder why that is. Uh, I heard a lot of people kind of chalking it up to, uh, well, you're not a parent. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, hmm, interesting. You know, I wondered if that was having a. A deeper uh, resonance, you know, with parents then. And Nicole, you're not a parent, but you have this relationship with (laughs) your sister to speak to. My sister refers to me as her third parent. Um, And I also, like, I have a very close relationship with one of my cousin's sons. He is, like, my nephew in every way. And the the thing, the realization I think that Johnny has in this moment um, is a realization I've had multiple times, both with this, you know, quote unquote, nephew of mine and with my sister when she was little. And so it, it it's, a there's so many moments in this that I really related to. And I just like, I've been there before. Um, and so I think that is sort of, I do think that if you are someone who either is a parent or is someone who has spent a lot of time around children, I know um, a couple of friends of mine who have nannied kids, this has really resonated with them. I think just if you've been in this position of having taken care of a child before, it is much more likely probably to have like that huge emotional effect on you. Or if you have been a teacher. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think if you've been a nanny, a teacher, anything like that. Yeah. All right. Tom O'Brien, final thoughts. Well, Matt, I think for my final thought, I'd like to offer one name. 
Gabby Hoffman. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> if Mike Mills should ever revisit these people again, I would pay a small fortune to see a oh. movie. What a great supporting performance. I wish we were talking about her a little bit more. Mm. A fascinating character. And Gabby Hoffman just delivers it so wonderfully, both as a mom and as a sister. And uh, I was just enthralled by her. I didn't I didn't really know her prior to this very much. And I said, who is this wonderful actress? And mm-hmm. now I'm in love. She, she is one of the most unique actresses working, I think. And whoever made the decision to cast her and Joaquin Phoenix as siblings deserves, like, they deserve a raise, they deserve awards. It, it is perfect <laughs> casting, <laughs> truly. Like, they just have such similar sensibilities as as people. They, like, they vibe. They have that vibe like they are siblings, even though they're not. And you're so, like, she is just so brilliant yes. in this. I, I love her. I've loved her for years. But she is so wonderful in this. She's so warm and grounded, yet also kind of flighty, like, hippy-dippy, earth-mothery, but, like, <laughs> Uh, it is like everything that I love about her distilled into one role. It's, it's so good. She reminds me also so much of one of my cousins who has two kids. Um, and like even the style of parenting is very similar. Um, so it it does. She's so phenomenal in this. And she's so like, like y'all are saying, she's so believable, not just as his brother, but also as Jesse's mother. Like, mm-hmm. She is very believable in, like, all of the different relationship dynamics that we see her in. And I also think that this film is saying something very interesting and very true about the emotional and physical labor that uh, women go through and the way that we Mm. see the sacrifices that she is making to go and care for her partner um, or Jesse's father. We're not really sure exactly where the relationship between them sits, I think. Uh, and I think that that's also like something very interesting because then we see like how taxing taking care of Jesse is on Johnny. And she's kind of like, yep, that's my life. And she has to do most of this over the phone. Yeah. 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 So it's a real credit to her abilities that her performance comes through as effectively as it does, uh, given those circumstances. All right, Tom, did you have anything else? That'll that's enough for the this. <laughs> All right, Dan Bear, final thoughts. Um, my one final thought is that I don't know about the rest of you, but when I saw this, there was a Q and A with Mike Mills afterwards, and when he revealed that Woody Norman is actually British. <laughs> the sound, the sound that my audience made. That was the sound of my head exploding just now. I've never heard <laughs> anything like it. We're literally all like, what? He's like, so talented. How? Like, just the fact that he was able to keep up with Joaquin Phoenix at all is a feat. The fact that he was also putting on a flawless American accent, like to the point where it felt like he was improving the whole movie. Like, ah, he's so talented. Yeah. I think it's one of the, it's, it's going to go down. We're only one year in, but it's going to go down as one of the best 
discoveries, I think, of the decade and best child performances that we'll see of the decade for sure. If we could somehow, like, get him a a, a Tatum O'Neill, you know, in Paper Moon style fraudulent supporting Oscar, like, I would be all about it. And and this has been a year for really terrific child seriously yeah and this one is on another level we'll get to that in just a second here yes <laughs> <laughs> anything else dan no that's it uh the only other thing that i will add here is i feel that even at its runtime of 108 minutes there is a part of me that feels that 10 minutes shorter would have been the sweet spot for this to I don't know, just land ever so slightly better for me. Nope, I never wanted this movie to end. Nah, there, there, there came a point for me in the third act where the interviews came back again, and I, I did have this moment of, okay, we're doing this again. They, they aren't adding anything new at this point. Like let's wrap, Like, let's wrap it up. And then there came a point where Johnny loses Jesse a second time. And for the life of me, I failed to recognize what the difference was between the first time and the second time that it was necessary. And so I did kind of just have this feeling of, okay, like this is getting repetitious. We need to wrap this up already. Can this movie just get to its ending? And the ending is really good, as mentioned before. So it did mitigate like kind of these feelings I was having of repetition by that point. Uh, but that's probably for me the only drawback I really ultimately have when all is said and done with this movie. And it's the only thing that is prohibiting me from giving it a score of 9 out of 10. If I had cried, maybe I would have given it a 9 out of 10. But as is, it's still really good. It's still one of the best films I've seen this year. I'm giving it a very, very strong 8 out of 10. Nicole? So I'm currently saying nine out of ten. This is one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, still shuffling around what's in my second, third, and fourth places, but it's currently sitting at number three. I actually do think that when I watch this a second time, I could end up bumping it up to a ten because I truly like have no notes for this film. Uh, but as of right now, I'm sitting at a nine. Dan Bear. Yeah, I am. Likewise, at an eight for this, and I likewise to Nicole feel like I could see myself point on rewatch. Tom O'Brien, Matt, I'm on the same page you are. For me, the film started spinning its wheels in the end of Act Two, and I got a little bit impatient with it, um, but it just picked right up, and that ending is just beautiful. Uh, it may be the strongest eight. Uh, I can give a film this year. It's 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 not quite a nine, but boy, what a great eight this is. All right. So then in terms of the film's awards prospects, we were talking earlier about Woody Norman in supporting actor. And I have to tell you all, given the fluidity of that category at this point in time right now, I really would not be surprised. I mean, they keep mentioning that he is British. Audiences are stunned when they learn this fact. 
His chemistry with Joaquin Phoenix is pretty extraordinary. If he were to be category frauded into supporting, and given how open that category is, there is a world where I legitimately can see this happening, provided that it does seem that A24 has a true passionate player for Best Picture on their hands, where this movie could get enough number one votes from those who really, really love it to push it into that race. And if that happens, it's then just a question of, well, what else is it bringing along with it for the ride? The thing is, this will be the test as to whether or not Minari was a fluke for A24. Because this should be contending for all the big prizes. It should be up for picture and director and screenplay and lead actor and supporting actor and honestly a supporting actress. Probably even cinematography, editing, score. Like, this should be an across-the-board player. But they have only managed to do that once and i really really hope they can do it again because it deserves it yeah right right now i see it's only sure nomination is screenplay Mm -hmm. i think phoenix is on the cusp and Mm -hmm. picture could be a possibility because eight nine and ten are a little wobbly Mm -hmm. so there might be a spot there but I, you know, you're right, Dan. I think it's all up to A24 to get the word out. Uh, I, I would hate to subject a child to a campaign. <laughs> I could see Woody Norman being just irresistible. On the- if he is able to get out there, like, like, um, like Roman Griffin Davis did for Jojo Rabbit, like this, he could legitimately contend. Yeah. But he has to get out there, and the state of the world being what it is, I I don't know. I really do think like screenplay is obviously its best bet. I I really do think it's got a good shot at picture, um, because like we were saying, those like eight, nine, and ten spots are kind of open right now and kind of fluid. Uh, I I also really do think that there's a world where this gets into cinematography and or score. Um, and I, I really would love to see Phoenix happen. I just, I don't know what to do with like the last one or two spots in actor right now. The thing is the Academy doesn't seem to like Joaquin Phoenix in this mode. They prefer him in the intense brooding mode. Yeah. 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 I mean, he couldn't get nominated for her. Yeah. But then again, then again, the difference now though, is he just won the Oscar very recently and he could be in this honeymoon period now with them mm-hmm. where yep. they love everything that he does and they're going to just keep on nominating him now. It's it's the old maxim, once a winner, always a threat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is so interesting because, you know, when this film first premiered on the scene back at Telluride, you know, I, I definitely had my eyes open to the possibilities for this movie but i like you guys was chalking this up to a screenplay contender mike mills being a previous nominee in that category uh the film certainly having enough strength here where also too i mean like you know despite the confidence that i'm speaking to that you're all speaking to about screenplay we mentioned very early in this review that because this feels less writerly and more natural There is then a question of if that is going to get overlooked, too, because 
mm-hmm. like the way the Academy views Joaquin Phoenix's more flashy performances, the writer's branch tends to reward uh, films that appear to be more writerly, yeah. <laughs> air quotes. <laughs> yeah, original screenplay, they tend to like things with original ideas and concepts, and this isn't exactly that. It's just a really damn good screenplay. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to be very curious to see, because there, uh, there is something, I, I can sense it. I can sense the best picture momentum is growing. And then it's just a question of, well, what else? The question is, like, will it be able to capitalize on that? I think in a year or 10 it can. And I haven't met a person who's seen it who hasn't really liked it. And so I think it may have that that as well. I I am hoping that that's the case. I worry that, you know, this premiered back at Telluride. It had, like, a kind of slow roll out across festivals and now slowly sort of spreading across the country. And there are a few remaining contenders to be seen that are really big and splashy. And this is not one of those big immediate, like it's going to hit and hit hard type of things. It's a lot quieter even though it does hit hard emotionally, I think. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how it's going to play with all these other like big noisemakers coming and sucking up all the energy. Does that make sense? I mean, yes. it totally does. Uh, I've actually always viewed it as those latecomers. I've, I've kind of set aside slots for those movies, even sight unseen, where this, it's kind of fighting with those other fringe contenders like Spencer or Coda mm-hmm. where we got to just see where the precursor support goes. You know, yeah. will this land a PGA nomination? Can it get in at something like Critics' Choice? Does Joaquin Phoenix show up at SAG? Is Woody Norman and Gabby Hoffman, are they bigger players in the supporting categories than we're anticipating? Uh, because when you start putting all these things together – it does start to add up. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I very much would love to see it in score. I would love to see Gabby, Woody. Uh, honestly, Joaquin is good, but like I, I do feel like now that he's gotten the Oscar, like I, I could live with him not getting a nomination. I won't I won't be upset if he does get in. I would love it. But yeah, I, I'm kind of in that mode right now where it's like, all right, we got you your Oscar. I, I'm not like <laughs> chomping at the bits to have you in a lineup again necessarily. <laughs> uh, but I would love to see Woody Norman and Gabby Hoffman get recognized in the supporting categories. That would be that, that would be incredible. <laughs> I genuinely and like not just at the indie spirits people. Come on. <laughs> exactly. So we'll see. Some Somebody's got to do like somebody's going to do like a tongue in cheek article of like. Come on, come on, Academy. <laughs> you know they will. Yeah. I hope they do. I hope I, they do. <laughs> I, I need the FYC ad. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on, people. <laughs> All right. Nicole Ackman, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman16. Dan Bear? You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film. And Tom O'Brien. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Come On, Come On here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.